Hey friends, once again, you're listening to the Hope and Hard Pills podcast, where we are exploring practical insight for racial justice and social change. I'm your host, Andre Henry, singer, songwriter, and author. And for the past several years, I've been on a serious intellectual quest to understand how do ordinary people work to work? Uh, how do we work together to change the world? Um, <laughs> some of you have been along for that journey. Thank you so much, all of our subscribers on Patreon who help make the show happen. You can join our Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Andre Henry. And today we have a very special guest on the show, a favorite of our team. When we, when I asked, you know, the team who should be on the show, um, Erica Woodland's name came up so often. Erica is a facilitator, um, of, of, of a healing justice practitioner, a licensed clinical social worker, and the founding director of the National Queer and Trans Therapists of Color Network. Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to speak with you today. Yeah, I'm so excited to speak with you. And here's the here's the problem I have is that there's so many things I could ask you about because you have such an interesting life and a mix of things that you've done and expertises. I don't even know if that's a word. It's a, we're going to pluralize it today, everyone. It's yes. their expertises. But I, I'm really interested to hear about the work that you do with the National Queer and Trans Therapists of Color Network. Could you tell us about your work and what does that look like? Sure. So first things first, we have a very long name. So we, we call it Incutin for short, and we are open to nicknames. Um, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's one of our love languages. But mm-hmm. the core of our work is really to advance a healing justice framework as a way to intervene around the way the mainstream mental health conversation um, really pathologizes our people. Mm-hmm. Um, and our people are Black, Indigenous, people of color, right. sick and disabled communities, Uh, queer and trans communities, um, and all those people who are deemed undesirable by the medical industrial complex. And so we feel really fortunate because part of what that means is connecting with, building with, and organizing alongside other radicalized mental health practitioners, right? Mm -hmm. And so for us, that includes folks who are licensed practitioners, um, but most of our people we know that we get our emotional and spiritual support outside of the mainstream mental health system. Mm. So we really like to complicate and trouble who gets held up um, as deemed legitimate to do this work. Um, And that's really important to us because, you know, our belief is that our people need access to an infinite number of resources to heal and to get free. Yeah. So uh, that's such an interesting uh, point that you just, you know, that you just made about how, you know, in our communities, you know, authority, you know, looks different. Right. And and where and where we find healing in those resources. What does that look like in in the network? Yeah. Well, I think what it looks like is having just a real deep understanding that when you are talking about therapists who are queer, trans, uh, BIPOC folks, we are literally living the conditions that Mm -hmm. we're supporting people to heal from. And so there is actually no differentiation for us in this work. Like, Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen that, you know, since we started in 2016, because it's been crisis after crisis after crisis, it's really directly impacted our people in a particular way. Um, And we know that a lot of our practitioners, including myself, we're trained up in a number of different modalities, right? Because we understand that. So I'm the therapist that says, yes, therapy. And sometimes therapy is actually not the thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, in my own healing practice, there are times where therapy actually was detrimental to what I was trying to move. 
because that wasn't the container for it. And I needed to do shamanic work. I needed to to do body work. And so we want to make sure people have access to this, but we also want to honor that there are so many different ways to heal and that, you know, therapists in particular play a particular role in terms of perpetuating harm. Mm. Um, We have to be, we have to be accountable for that. Um, We don't have to be accountable for these systems that we didn't create, right? Wholesale. Mm -hmm. But we Mm -hmm. do need to acknowledge that just by virtue of our role, we have certain authority and we can actually collude with the state or we can subvert the state um, Mm. in our work. Wow. I want to ask you about healing justice. There's so many questions I have about healing justice as a framework and I think you are the, well, I I was about to say, I think you're the first person on our show that really uh, talks about this a lot, but we've had Adrian Marie Brown on before, but I don't think we talked about it very much, Um, but I really love following her and listening to what she has to say. I feel like this is for our listeners. I'm I'm sure there are a bunch of people who are listening for who this concept is relatively new, or maybe they've heard the term before, but haven't heard very much about it. How do you think about healing justice, like in a nutshell, as a framework? Yes, this is super important. Um, And myself and a colleague right now are doing a lot of writing around around this. Mm -hmm. So healing justice really speaks to the ways that our peoples have intervened and transformed intergenerational trauma Mm -hmm. and crisis and grief. And so in a nutshell, um, it's boiled down to that, you know, so clearly for me. And that comes from Kindred Southern Healing Justice Collective. So to just Mm -hmm. be really clear, um, Mm -hmm. that's how I enter the lineage is through their work. Um, Mm -hmm. Everybody should check them out. Um, And specifically my work with Kara Page, who is a comrade, a friend, um, and a former advisory board member. And Mm -hmm. so it really, I think it's important to remind folks that healing justice comes from movement, that framework comes from movement. Mm -hmm. But you know, what the framework is speaking to, our, our communities have always had traditions, always had practices, always had ceremony to heal, to transform, to transmute suffering. Yeah. And it's that's been really integral to our resistance and our liberation. Mm. And for the network, we really, you know, because we're talking to folks who live in a mental health context, we really um, are explicit that it's a political framework, it's a spiritual framework, It really honors the legacy, resistance, and resilience of queer and trans people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, And it puts the onus and responsibility for our trauma and suffering on structural violence. Mm. And we're really clear about that. So even if Mm -hmm. you're looking at violence inside of our communities, you can trace the origin of that back to white supremacy, colonization, attempted genocide, and so forth. Yeah. And so... In this moment where folks are either newer to healing justice or, you know, it's being rapidly adopted Mm -hmm. without a lot of um, historical context and without a lot of um, anchoring in the lineage, it's important to ground folks in where it comes from. So we don't participate in the erasure of black and brown folks and queer and trans folks and sick and disabled folks expertise. Mm For sure. And could you talk a little bit about how the, the relationship between the healing justice framework and the mental health work that you do? I know that you touched on it a bit, but I think for most of us who are only encounter with mental health is through like the mainstream, you know, mental health um, institutions and things like that. It's not something that we hear about, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in that framework. So how do those things work together? That's a great question. So 
when you come from communities that have experienced the types of violence that we've experienced, mm-hmm. um, sometimes a system that seems to be providing care, the, the closer you get to it, the more you realize it's actually connected to, you know, the origins of this country, which are extremely violent, right? Yeah. Which were rooted in our annihilation. And yeah. so it, it became clear to me um, as, an, as a young organizer that I needed to gain skills to be able to meet folks around the level of trauma that I was seeing in my organizing work and in my mm-hmm. direct service work. So I chose to go to social work school. But as a young person who was politicized and being mentored by revolutionaries, mm. I, I was very clear that they were going to try to indoctrinate me in a set of values that were actually going to be in, in co- contradiction to the work that I was doing in community. And so if we understand that the mental health system is rooted in ableism, is rooted Mm -hmm. in capitalism, is rooted in white supremacy, Mm -hmm. um, is rooted in Christian supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. Xenophobia, queer and transphobia, then then there's limitations inside of that system. Mm -hmm. We didn't create it, it's not for us. And it it was used to justify all kinds of atrocities against our people. So we can't disappear that history and just become a therapist, right? Right, right. And so healing justice for me offers, you know, in my practice as a psychotherapist, it offers such a larger container to do this work because Mm -hmm. it decenters me as an individual practitioner. I'm not Mm -hmm. one person out here trying to save someone. We we can't save people, right? Mm. Um, But I am part of a longer lineage of ancestors, of living elders who were willing to get free and to heal by any means necessary. Mm. And it helps to really politicize our healing and it politicize our experience of trauma. Whew. I'm just going to sit with that for a couple seconds because I really feel that in a deep way. You know, the notion of politicizing our healing, that's a new idea for me that I'm going to be chewing on for a while. You mentioned the, a part of your story. I wonder if I could ask you about it. Um, also, you know, feel free to tell me to mind my business. Um, <laughs> you know, but you mentioned that you um, were politicized as a young person and that you were mentored by revolutionaries. How, what was your political formation like? You know, how, how did you come to this work? I know that's a big question that <laughs> could probably take the rest of our time. And I have other questions for you, but I'm just so curious. Yeah, I mean, I think as someone who came into the world with a very big mouth and big opinions. (laughs) Um, And as a young person, just moved through a lot of different spaces where I got to see firsthand the way privilege and power function. I had a lot of questions. I was like, how come this, if I'm in this context with a whole bunch of affluent white folks, they have access to things that like my family doesn't, right? No matter how hard we work. So I I understood capitalism at a really young age. I knew it was Mm. a setup. I was like, "Um, (laughs) as hard as my single black mama is working and and we still don't have the lights on or heat, Mm -hmm. like something is not adding up around this. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, obviously I went I went to a university, Ivy League university, which also Mm kind of helped me see just how privilege functions, how power functions, mm-hmm. how resources function. It really helped me complicate the the intersection and difference between race and class. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was slated to become a doctor. I was like, okay. I'm going to be a doctor. That's what I'm going to do. I want to help people. It's a done deal. 
I was like 10 years old. I knew what my whole life plan was going to be. <laughs> and, you know, through that, through that educational process, I was like, oh, this is hella racist. Mm. I was like, y'all are out here just like mm. very blatantly on the medical racism. Mm. Um, it, you know, no space to clap back. Mm. How dare you challenge what we're talking about? And I got to see firsthand that that was not going to be a field in which um, I felt comfortable making a yeah. difference. Um, And so instead of the last uh, pre-med requirement, which was organic chemistry, Mm -hmm. I decided to take a course on the history of the Black Panthers. Oh. And it was a wrap. That'll do it. (laughs) It was was a whole wrap. I was like, oh, shit. Like, it just broke down the whole system. You know, my internal experience of who I am, the internalized devaluation, the internalized dehumanization and inferiority. I was like, oh, that's by design. Mm. got you mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, when I moved back to Baltimore after college you know I got into harm reduction work um, I started organizing with folks of color um, who were protesting the war um, in Iraq and I met um, one of my mentors Dominique Conway um, and her partner Eddie Conway who's a former political prisoner and former Black Panther and mm-hmm. they really um, not only nurtured my development as a young person yeah but really offered me different models of how to be of service in community, but also do the work that I was doing in these other settings around academia mm-hmm. and mental health and care, you know? And so, yeah. you know, these are, these are still my people. These are people that I still go to with mm-hmm. kind of the questions that keep me up at night. And I never lost sight of what was most important, right? And when you mm-hmm. have the Panthers as a blueprint, it really opens up what's possible in terms of healing, in terms of care, in terms of what it means to be about the actual revolutionary change um, mm-hmm. in a real substantive way. Yes, yes. Um, you mentioned the questions that keep you up at night. What are those? What are, what are, what, is, what are a couple of them? <laughs> oh, this is such a good question. This is such a good question. What keeps me up at night? So I think a lot of what keeps me up at night has to do with what is the best use of my contribution in this moment. Yeah. And and that feels a little bit like self-centered to have that be the question, but I'm I'm like you I have this life, right? Right. I have the gifts that I have, I have the flaws that I have. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm in this particular body at this time. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, the ancestors, they keep me up at night because they're very mm-hmm. clear about like, no, this is what we need you to do. And <laughs> you can you can say no, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and but I don't like the consequences when I don't listen to them. So I try to listen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but to be really clear about what my contribution is and to stay in my lane. Yeah. Um, I think another question that keeps me up at night is how do we create the context and conditions for more of us to heal collectively, to yes. build power, to yes. get free, um, and and to kind of push back against the conflation between self-care and healing justice. You know, mm. those are the pieces. Those are the things that really, they just enrage me because we just have capitalism everywhere we go, you right. know, and right. I, I want to be in a world where there are more of us committed to healing justice as a, as a set of political and spiritual values and practice mm-hmm. um, for the end goal, which is our complete liberation. Yes. Right? Um, not so that we can, you know, 
have a nice Instagram following, which is great. You know what I mean? Says the person who's terrible at social media. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I, I just, I really, I want so much for our people. And I think we have a lot of resources and I want to know how we effectively take care of one another. Um, And there's so much pain Mm -hmm. that we're grappling with. There's so much pain that we weaponize against each other. Yeah. And a lot of the moments where I feel most stuck are around like, okay, how do we show up as full humans in this moment together and not take each other out? (laughs) Yeah. You know? And those are the questions that I would rather tend to than thinking about for instance, what white people are doing. You know what uh, I mean? Like, I, I can't get them together. I don't, they don't have enough money to pay me to get them together. <laughs> oh my gosh. There, okay, I wish we could talk all day because I want to ask you all kinds of questions about what you just said. But everyone listening, <laughs> you're just going to have to sit with that because we're not going to dig deeper. But you just sit with those questions because those are good. And I do want to just comment that I think that the first question is a very strategic question, actually. Because... Yeah. You're looking at what you have to see what you can do. Mm-hmm. But um, what comes up for me here is, so I've been studying nonviolent struggle for the past several years and mm-hmm. organizing from, you know, those like a strategic nonviolence framework. And the path that I took did not take me to many Black writers initially. Mm. So I'll say that first, right? And my dad, who, um, were, my, my, my folks are Jamaican. Mm-hmm. So you got to know that about my dad. Garveyite. Yeah, kind of Rasta, you know, kind of kind of guy. He says to me, I think it was earlier this year. He said, Andre, Black liberation is offering food, shelter and clothing to Black people. That's what he said. Mm-hmm. And he just left it at that. And it really has worked on me. Uh, this, And I want to ask you about this, this connection. I find that when I'm with when I'm with Melina Abdullah or, you know, folks, you know, from Black Lives Matter or or whatever, like there is a very different framework from the one that I kind of been self-educating myself on. And I'm really curious about this connection between tending to our healing, our well-being, making sure our needs are met, that kind of thing mm-hmm. as liberation work. Yes. Because everything that I've read about has been organizing protests and going mm-hmm. and putting pressure on targets and stuff. And I think that stuff is valuable. Right. So I'm kind of being selfish with this question and being like, yo, this you 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 work at this intersection of us being whole and us being free, mm-hmm. given the system that we live under, which you're well aware of. Can you help me connect the dots here? <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, I think that's why healing justice is the framework for me because. Mm-hmm. You know, before we had movements that were connected to the nonprofit industrial complex and funded by philanthropy, mm-hmm. we had the American Indian Movement, we had the Young yes. Lords, we had the Brown Berets, we had the Panthers. You know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. we actually, and there, those are very clear examples of yeah. building power, resistance, struggle requires that you take care of people. Mm-hmm. And the, and I think the piece that I have been um, witnessing for 10 plus years inside of our movement work, right, is the ways that our trauma gets weaponized by the state. Mm. So if you have communities that are highly traumatized, they're cut off from basic human needs, they're cut off from their healing resources, they're told that their ancestral traditions and practices are demonic and evil, right? Mm. And you have white people learning them and selling them back to you, right? Whoop. 
<laughs> so when when you do that to people, they are much more easier to control and dominate. Yes. And so just taking care of people is revolutionary when it's connected back up to the larger mm-hmm. goal and the larger mm-hmm. project, which is to get free and to understand that like we're unstoppable. If we have food, clothes, and shelter, mm. if we have ways to transform and intervene around trauma, mm. and we have movement to participate in, which is also mm-hmm. part of our healing, then that's that's a very big threat, which is why the free breakfast program by the Panthers, that was targeted specifically, yeah. right? They, like, yes, they hated were, that. They were like, wait, y'all are out here educating <laughs> people. You, you're you taking care of people better than the state? Yes. What? And, that, and they wanted to undermine their legitimacy. Mm-hmm. So those things are really intertwined. But if you don't, if you're not rooted in a political framework, then that kind of care can just be charity. It can just be like, yeah. oh, you, I'm not going to build power with you. I'm not going to be in a mutual aid solidarity relationship with you. I'm going to give you something so that you become dependent and you mm-hmm. are cut off from your own power. And that is right. a lot of the service organizations that are out here, right? Right, right, right. Um, I have three questions for you. <laughs> okay. The first is, and I write about this, I have a book coming out soon. So like I write about my own political awakening, just mm-hmm. being like very much kind of gaslighted into um, submission as a yes. young person, as a young black person. You know, what's funny is when I look back on my life, I remember a very angry black boy mm. at nine, <laughs> you know, like eight or nine, be fourth grade, already being resentful of white people around me because I grew up in Stone Mountain, you know. Next to a Klansman. Yes, okay. And then there's a whole portion of my life where I look back and I go, oh, the things I said sound like white people. And that's Mm -hmm. why I say being gaslighted into submission. So anyway, but the later half of the book, I write about what it was like after becoming part of the movement, of the Black Lives Matter movement. And one thing that I saw from, you know, trying to organize with folks locally Well, something like what you said, like some of our traumas, there were no mechanisms between us for us to address the wounds that we came in with. Mm -hmm. And so we just started hurting each other and then groups break up and start new groups and it just keeps going um, without accountability for leaders who cause harm, you know, or healing for leaders who cause harm either, you know, Mm because that was something we saw too. Like we had some we had some really harmful leaders, but we also were trying to connect that to their larger story of like, yeah, they did that, but blah, blah, blah. All right. So anyway, basically it seems like as one Rasta poet says, like we can't get the thing together. You know, like we, (laughs) (laughs) we have these wonderful values that we're expressing about abolition and Mm. we apply them to people that we don't know in news stories, national news stories and stuff like that. But when it comes down to the person that I am on the street with, you know, it seems like we can't practice those values amongst one another. And I don't, you know, I I just wonder if you have any thoughts about that, you know, like what do you think might be a way that we can start walking on the path toward being that kind of change that we want to see in the larger Mm -hmm. society? Yes, that's such a good question and such a good observation. And that's another thing that keeps me up at night. (laughs) Um, Me too. (laughs) So I want to just normalize what you just said. It makes sense because we are having a very huge shift in consciousness 
We have mm-hmm. access to language and concepts, but we're not actually grounded in them. So yeah. I, I've been an abolitionist since I was 21 years old, right? Mm-hmm. So 20 years, 20 years, mm-hmm. right? 20 years ago, people were like, what in the fuck are you talking about, right? Yeah. And now, mm-hmm. any, any day now, you're going to see a corporation adopting abolitionist language trying to co-opt, right? So Bound to happen. I think part of the tension that I'm seeing is that we have access to all this language, but we have we don't have the experience, we don't have kind of the discipline that we yeah. need around and the self work, and we don't have the context and conditions to do that work. So mm. if we had more infrastructure built out around transformative justice and healing justice, that gap would be a little bit less wide, right? Mm. So some of it is about like what do we need to do collectively to get our shit together. You know, because I, I like to say there's trauma and then there's drama. Mm. And sometimes those things are related and sometimes, that, sometimes you know, your, your trauma did not do that. You you were showing your ass. And I'm saying that from personal experience, you know, like, let's just let's just be real. And also, and I'm not the only person to say this, but my own personal healing was dependent upon accountability. Yeah. It was dependent upon accountability. So those things have to be. Um, in really deep relationship, but we don't know how to do it. And that's also why we need practitioners who are grounded in both of those frameworks to be able to support our people. I I also think that, and I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm getting old, but I think that there's a level of permissiveness Mm -hmm. in movement spaces in community spaces, because we, we know what it feels like to be rejected. You know, Um, we know what it feels like to be excluded and I don't think we should be excluding people, but I think we have to be oriented around a shared purpose and a shared set of values. Mm-hmm. And I know when I was a young person trying to start things, I didn't do that pre-work. Right, and right, so right. that's why my group disbanded, because we were not aligned around purpose and values. And those yeah. are the things that bring you back into alignment when there's been rupture. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we also, listen, I am the king of boundaries, yeah. Let me tell you what a boundary will do for your trauma resolution. <laughs> it will get you together. Okay. So listen. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, so you talked about the things that keep you up at night. What keeps you going? What keeps you showing up to do the work? Yes. Okay. So many things. First of all, our people are hilarious. <laughs> yes. Especially black people. I'm like, oh my gosh, the memes. I feel like memes, memes sometimes are actually memes and podcasts end up being more helpful than therapy sometimes, just keeping it 100. Mm -hmm. Because you need a place for your unevolved parts to to get their needs met. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. how does the lower self engage with the world? You know, we can't always be, um, you know, operating from the the highest. Um, I also think that I I literally get to do all of my work is on my own terms and with people mm-hmm. I deeply respect and deeply learn yeah. from. And yeah. so I'm just like, I get to talk to very brilliant individuals who are asking really hard questions, who are building out ecosystems of care, who are kind, who are gracious. I'm like, this is fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's really, really exciting. And I think in my lifetime, I'm seeing things that I didn't think I was going to see. I did not think we were going to be having an actual conversation about abolition in my lifetime. Like, right. like in the broader community. I was like, they just right. said abolition on CNN. Like, I don't understand 
yeah. what's happening here, you know? Yeah. And yeah. so I think there's a lot of change and there's a lot of potentiality available to us. And so yeah. I don't actually feel hopeless about this time. I'm like, it's, it's going to wear us out. It's going to be mm-hmm. very hard. Right. But yeah. it's also going to be deeply clarifying and it's going to bring, it's going to force us into a kind of alignment. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to be a part of supporting that alignment. Yeah. And how can people support the work that you're doing? Yes. Great question. So the National Queer and Trans Therapists of Color Network, we are, we're on Instagram and Facebook primarily. We are also in the midst of our end of year fundraising. And we mm-hmm. are super, super grateful for just the outpouring of support that we've received from the beginning of, of starting the network. People who are really committed to healing, liberation for queer and trans people of color. Um, and so you can find us on our website um, and on social medias. Um, to check out our work. And we have some really exciting things happening um, next year that we're excited to share with folks. Wonderful. Well, Erica, this has been so great. I'm so thankful for your time. Thank you so much for being on the show. We have to have you back so we can talk about more things and stuff, you know, just stuff and things. And um, yeah, well, we'll see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Also, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps us get more ears and minds. You can find all the links in the show notes for today's guest, as well as Andre's newsletter, Patreon, and book. You can connect with Andre on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Andre Henry. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. We'll see you next time.